Welcome to Broken Potholes with your hosts, I'm Sam Stone, Chuck Warren. In the studio with us, as almost always, the irrepressible Kylie Kipper. And today's guest, someone I'm very excited to have on the program because I'm a nerd. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is uh, is a president of president president of the Arizona Tax Research Association, which is probably an organization not many people outside of the government circles have heard of, but it's an incredibly important one. Uh, you are a recognized expert in the fields of public finance and taxation, extensive experience representing taxpayers and policymakers at the state and local level. I know you've been very helpful to some of us, at least, in the city of Phoenix over the years. Hope so. Some some were maybe not as happy with that help <laughs> from time to time. That's true. Um, uh, you've appointed, uh, been appointed to and served on numerous legislative and executive committees. You're currently serving on the Arizona State Retirement System Board and the Property Tax Oversight Commission, both of which are critically important to Arizona families, taxpayers, anyone walking around in our state, they just don't know it. That's right. That's right. So, Kevin, thank you. Welcome to the program. Appreciate the invite. So tell us a little bit about ATRA. What is it? What do you do? And and how, you know, how is that? How's it going right now? Sure. Well, so the Arizona Tax Research Association is a 80-year-old taxpayer organization, one of the older taxpayer associations in the United States. We have about 28 organizations around the country that are similar, that are statewide taxpayer groups. ATRA was formed 80 years ago by largely the ranching and and uh, and copper industry and the largely business been business uh, membership financed through our history and our job is to be a watchdog of state and local governments uh, how they spend how they generate their revenue for from taxpayers and how they spend those monies uh, myself and a staff of three others uh, do that a lot of people in government, particularly local government, think we have a staff of 30 because they think all <laughs> we're doing is looking at city governments or, or uh, K-12 schools, but it's a, we're, we're a very small organization. One of the things that we do uh, that I think is really important when the legislature's in session, we are ever-present at the Capitol. We, we read every bill that's dropped for that has a public finance or tax impact. Our staff are experts in public finance. They can tell lawmakers what the impacts are. Four very overworked experts, by the sound yeah. of it. <laughs> it is. Yeah, they, they, my staff likes to remind me of that uh, <laughs> on a regular basis. Uh, and we, so we lobby at the Capitol. Uh, we testify on bills. We have our own legislative programs. So we're heavily involved in any state and local tax issues, uh, whether it's changes in property taxes, sales taxes, income taxes. My staff are experts in the school finance system that's quite complicated. And so if there's a change being made to a technical area of the school finance system, we're often testifying in front of committees explaining to lawmakers how this is going to affect both schools as well as taxpayers. And if we think it's a bad policy and it's something that's going to negatively affect taxpayers, we'll be opposing it. And um, so we're we're pretty good at, at uh, stopping legislation that, that is bad. Uh, lawmakers, you know, a lot of times lobbyists get, get a bad rap. But a lot of times if there's not somebody in, in the meeting room to explain to a lawmaker maybe a, that is new what a, the technical uh, impacts are of legislation, they, they don't know. And those bills move through committees. And so we, 
we try to uh, to be there to make sure that at least they understand what the what the impacts are, not only on on the entity that's t- levying the tax, but the taxpayers that are paying it. Kevin, so of uh, the legislators, who up there do you feel has the best grasp of budgets? Every legislature has some people that are just due to background, or they just have the ability to understand it. Who up there, if I was a Arizona voter, would you say has the best grasp on budgetary numbers? You're asking for a specific member? Yeah. You're going to yeah. get me in trouble. <laughs> no, I mean, look, let's say they're all good, okay? <laughs> yeah. But there's always an exceptional people, right? There's always one or two. Who, who would you up there that you feel like is just, um, that just really understands it? Because it's not, it's you know, not it's, easy. It's not like an Excel sheet for Little League accounting, right? right. And for, before, I, before I answer that, just, I think it's in fairness to uh, lawmakers in the process. Uh, I, when I meet with new lawmakers or somebody that's running for office and going to be at the Capitol, I, one of the many things I tell them is don't, don't pretend that you're going to be an expert on everything. Right. It is very difficult. There are, uh, you know, upwards of, of 800 bills that are introduced in any given, given year. Uh, I'm amazed at the amount of work that they've got to they've got to uh, plow through. We're only dealing with public finance and tax. They're dealing with the whole uh, gamut of of issues, and so some some <clears throat> will have decided to develop some area, it, develop their strength in an area that's non-budget related. It it is sure. you know maybe environmental, for examples, and 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 running uh, the. Uh, uh, you know, important water issues that the state sure. might face, yeah. but I, there are there are some that that focus on 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 budget and tax. Uh, in the House, the current House Appropriations Chair um, Regina Cobb has done an outstanding job getting up to speed with the uh, how the budget works. It is it, you, you could spend twenty years uh, there and not completely understand right. all the various aspects of the of the budget budget. Um, you know, it, they're in the in the Senate. Um, you know, you you've got uh, Senator Vince Leach, who's uh, the Senate pro tem is is uh, I think early in his career decided that he was going to focus on public finance and tax. Does an outstanding job. And, uh, and Vince Dave, has really grown over the years in oh, in that knowledge and his yeah. ability to navigate that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Senator David Gallon, the appropriations chair, same thing. Has okay. spent Good. a lot of time working on that, and they they don't get as much credit. People people don't realize how much time goes into building. I I tell people we we could have sessions and not pass a bill, and it uh, would it might be a rewarding exercise, but you do have to pass a budget, and it uh, <clears throat> and it's easy for some lawmakers to to criticize. Spending the size of the budget, maybe various aspects of the budget, but if people run for office and say, "Listen, I, I don't like how much money is being spent, so I'm just going to vote no, and I'm checking out of this process, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to really engage in it because I don't like it to begin with." Uh, forget that that's really the number one reason why they were elected was to <laughs> to pass a to pass a state budget. So I encourage lawmakers to stay in the fight. Uh, you know, successes at the margins are important. And, and you're not a partisan organization. We are not. We uh, we don't get involved in partisan campaigns. We are very active in statewide initiatives that affect taxpayers. We were we were heavily involved uh, 
a year and a half ago trying to defeat Prop 208, which was uh, a devastating proposal to raise uh, personal income taxes, but we do not get involved in partisan activity. We, we take calls on a regular basis from Democrats and, and who ask us questions, just straightforward questions. How does this work? How does, how does the tax system uh, impact uh, taxpayers in a particular area? And, and they know we'll answer the question straightforward and honestly. Because if you're a U.S. Congress member, you have the Office of Budge- uh, Management, OMB, Office of Management and Budget. They score all the bills that affect these things. And there's some questions about whether that's a partisan process or not. But we don't have that kind of thing in the states, right? It's organizations like yours that fill that role. Well, that's true. There, There is some of that going on. There, We have a very, very uh, capable group at the Joint Legislative Budget Committee that uh, scores bills, but not every bill gets scored. Uh, you could have a, a quite complicated bill in the area of school finance that may not may not look to have a, a an impact on taxpayers directly, but as, it does. As, as all school finances seem to be, they seem to get more complicated as every passing day comes yeah, we've, upon us. We've done a good job over the last uh, 40 years of overcomplicating what, what should have originally been a, a relatively straightforward school finance system that pretty much let dollars follow right. the kid. Question. Okay, so the 2.5% flat tax that the legislature um, passed, how does that benefit the state of Arizona? And why did the Democrats and teachers unions bring f- over $4 million of out-of-state money in to try to— And, and are doing it again. Yeah, that's what they spent so far, almost $5 million, to overturn this. What, what, first of all, what are the benefits for the state as you see it? And why are they panicking so much that they're having liberal unions outside of Arizona come in and spend almost $5 million trying to overturn it? So the, the, the per, the, that was the, lar- the, your, the tax cut you're talking about was large tax cut in Arizona history, approaching $2 billion in uh, uh, moving Arizona's marginal rate structure that is roughly between 25 and 45 down to a flat tax of, of 2.5% was the direct result of the passage of Prop 208. So 208 financed, as you, you had indicated, by out-of-state <clears throat> special interest groups, uh, which which really did by but precious little in terms of generating a lot of money for the K twelve schools. It was uh, eight hundred million, roughly, that was being generated. Uh, we've appropriated that in single years to the K twelve schools, and and especially in recent years. So it wasn't going it wa- it wasn't going to be an amount of money to dramatically improve their financial situation, but it did extraordinary damage to a personal income tax system that was in pretty good shape and 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 drove our top marginal rate uh, to uh, 8%, making it the ninth highest income tax in the country. Uh, we led with the first analysis on the impact of, of that and, and uh, tried to educate taxpayers that actually we have benefited significantly from a relatively low marginal rate of 4.5%. We've sw- been swimming in uh, income tax revenue for the last 25 years, and this was going to was going to literally ruin that. It, as you know, it passed, and the the legislature, uh, the Republicans in the legislature, were quite concerned about the long term damage that that was going to do, and said we're we're going to do whatever we can to try to mitigate that economic development and economic growth damage, and so they set out on on doing everything that they could in the income tax code to mitigate the damage done by 208. What what evolved was a income tax package that if you had told me back in 
you know, a week before the election occurred that, that they would be doing that, I'd say that that would be rather remarkable. Uh, but I think it was a, a response to by them uh, in unanimous, by the way, Republicans in, in both the House and the Senate, how significantly their concerns were that, that this was going to do huge damage. Uh, and so that's why it passed. And the same group, by the way, that advocated for 208 came back to uh, put that back on the ballot. Uh, we have a, an initiative process and a referendum process, so they've referred that back to the ballot. Right, that's what I was talking about. They just they brought in four, almost five million dollars from out of state to just put this back on the ballot again now and to get rid of it. It's it's quite remarkable that no one in Arizona is funding this. Well, no one in Arizona, for the most part, in my eyes, uh, uh, funded the original two hundred eight. No, they did it. Was uh, and and I twenty million spent more than twenty million spent on both sides. Uh, our money in opposition was uh, dominantly Arizona-based monies, and theirs were out-of-state monies from Portland and uh, the National Teachers Union. We'll carry on with that when we come back. Broken Potholes, coming back in just a moment. It's the new year, and time for the new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from GoDaddy.com today. Welcome back to Broken Potholes with your hosts, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. In the studio with us today, Kevin McCarthy from the Arizona Tax Research Association. This is the geeky love. This is the geeky stuff I love, Chuck. I love this stuff. But, you know, I want to talk about something that's kind of one of the important talking points you hear from a lot of Republicans around the country here in Arizona is they want to push for a zero income tax. That's not always the best idea versus maybe just having the lowest overall tax burden, right? What what are the effects? I mean, if if we were to push to that here in Arizona, well, there have been um, <clears throat> at least a couple of Republicans who've run for for office in Arizona and said that they wanted to eliminate the the income tax. Uh, started with Governor Fife Symington, who who made quite a quite a, a push for that and and made. Uh, a, a fair amount of progress in decreasing personal income taxes, almost upwards of 40 percent uh, during his tenure. Um, the problem with the complete elimination of the income tax is that it is one thing to build a tax system without it, as Nevada has done and Texas has done and Florida has done, where the other systems are built uh, so as not to overburden them, whether it's property taxes or sales taxes. Most states have what we call a three-legged stool, income taxes, property taxes, and sales taxes. If you have a tax that's already in place and you try to w- eliminate it, uh, let alone wean yourself off of it, it can create quite a bit of a shock to the overall balance of the tax system. And Arizona's, regrettably, Arizona's property tax system and sales tax system uh, aren't poised to take on much more of a burden than they, <clears throat> they've already got, particularly the property tax. Arizona's property tax has been famous for having some of the highest property tax burdens on business in the United States. At one time in the, in the late 1990s, 
our effective tax rates on businesses were third highest in the United States. No one wanted to come here with a with a major industrial op- operation like an Intel, uh, which is why some of the tax uh, incentives that were put into the property tax system, whether it's foreign trade zones, uh, what have you, to try to decrease that burden because we had set up the system intentionally to overtax business and undertax uh, residential property. So if we were to eliminate income taxes and shift more of that burden on onto the property tax, you'd immediately have some serious economic development challenges in, in aggravating uh, the business property tax problem. And by before I leave that, we, to the credit of state policymakers, there's been a lot of progress made in fixing that problem. We now are uh, in the business property tax rate rank in the low 20s. The assessment ratio on business property that was as high as 25% um, some 15 years ago is now headed to 16% with the most recent legislation that was passed. And it's not an easy political uh, area to work in. And a lot of lawmakers over a lot of long period of time and governors deserve a lot of credit to go in that direction to solve that problem as opposed to targeted tax breaks. The other thing on the sales tax, if we if we tried to recoup all that income tax on the sales tax, there's really not room for that either. We have some of the highest sales tax rates in the United States. Uh, it's not uncommon in Arizona to run into a sales tax rate that eclipses 10%. That's quite uncommon across the United States. Sales taxes are popular in, in Arizona. If you want to get something passed, if you want to fund a transportation project or something big, that's that's the easiest place to go. Uh, the reason for that is nobody knows how much they pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I don't know how much I pay in sales taxes, and I'm the geek that you're referring to, I'm pretty sure no one else knows. Well, it's it's just no, they, it's, and they it, don't they, look at it a lot of times. No. Yeah. No, it, you know, when Phoenix passed the luxury tax, the add-on to our sales tax that kicks in on products that are, I think, over $98,500, um, that actually drove down our tax revenues. Sure. Because all the businesses that sold products that cost more than hundred grand went out of, city, out of state because they are out of city. They went just across our border. Because you can see it. If you're going to go buy a $100,000 car and it costs two grand more on one side of the street than it does on the other, that's pretty easy to see. And it doesn't matter how much money you have, you're going to go save two grand. Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, that's why a lot of the, the auto dealerships, uh, when if they can, they'll try to gravitate to the unincorporated areas of the county so they don't have to negotiate the city a city sales tax at all. And so, um, yeah, well, and when you, when you eclipse 10% on the sales tax and – and taxpayers do the math in their head. Now you have problems when people when it's south of that, and people don't do that math. They kind of they don't think too much about right. it. When they start doing it, when they when they're doing it in their head, when they start when they start counting on their fingers, you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we got we we, we were uh, as a fiscal system, we were aided in that challenge by the um, the Wayfair decision in the U.S. Supreme Court that tax remote sales. A lot of people, you know, probably don't like me hearing saying that, that 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 was a good thing. But if you're a state that has a fiscal structure that that relies on sales taxes as much as we do, unless we want to go get it in higher income taxes or property taxes, uh, you have to you can't have that leaky hole in the bottom of your your bucket and have that much commerce being done online. And when that was happening, most of those transactions weren't taxable. Uh, and the state was losing hundreds of millions. And, and part of the shot in the arm that we've seen during the pandemic 
state and local governments, by the way, are swimming in money. The impact that the, the, the federal largesse has had on state and local budgets has been unbelievable. And, and so we're, we, we, we continue to have record sales tax growth. We wouldn't be having that if we weren't able to tax those, those transactions that are occurring through mm-hmm. online, through Amazon, and having delivered. How much, re- how much revenue has that since the Wayfair awesome. decision? How much revenue has it increased for the state? Just on, just on that alone, uh, uh, at the state level, uh, we think you know, roughly $300 million. Uh, you add oh, you annually, know, annually, and and local. That doesn't include uh, local governments. They're probably in the hundred million. Yeah, Phoenix uh, thinks it's one hundred and forty, hundred and fifty million. Yeah, uh, well, not probably not for them alone, but they for uh, statewide for for uh, cities, it it could be that high. It's it it is. Now, some of that might be temporal. They're they're clearly, I think, through the pandemic, people locked at home. There was a lot, a lot going on. People and and people getting all of the stimulus money, a lot of transactions that were occurring online that were state and local governments are benefiting from that tax revenue. Uh, so some of that will slow, but no, it's, not it's much been, though. I mean, uh, I think I think this is a habit for people now. There's no doubt. People are, I, and I know for, it. for I the think, introverts of the world, this is a wonderful thing, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know. My my <laughs> wife's not an introvert, but I, there's a package at the front door every day, <laughs> and so we are paying. I'm paying a lot of sales taxes on uh, to whatever. Well, it is we we're uh, we appreciate your efforts to help the Arizona <laughs> yeah, state government. You know, one of the things you, you kind of touched on, and it, it's one of the things I want to talk about when we come back for the next segment, but the city of Phoenix and dealing with their unions, and we have this union coming in from outside, they only see raising taxes as a way to increase the revenue. And, and it's really all about their membership. Um, but they never see growing the economy. And so I think that's one of the disconnects that we're we're talking about with these propositions and these folks coming in from out of state. Well, that's because they're not responsible for a paycheck. The money comes on a tree. Right. I mean, it's monopoly money to them. Well, and you get a raise every single year. And... Ask every school district with a supervisor making the salaries they make. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the point that we made in 208 was that we're, we benefited so much from having a steady reduction in income taxes here. And the number of millionaire filers we have have skyrocketed in the last 30 years. That doesn't happen if you have those high rates. They're not going to locate here. No. Yep. Broken potholes coming right back. The 2020 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2021. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome back to Broken Potholes with your hosts Chuck Warren and Sam Stone in the studio with us today, as always, the irrepressible Kylie Kipper and our fantastic guest, especially if you like the nerdy tax tax stuff that we deal with every day, Kevin McCarthy from the Arizona Tax Research Association. Right before we went to break, we were talking a little bit about some of the effect of these uh, unions and others coming in with these big tax proposals. But I, I think another thing that people don't understand. There's a lot of cheering when we get a Taiwan semiconductor coming in, building a you know $3 billion plant, but that's being done with special tax breaks, special deals, right? And, and those actually have effect on everyone else, on all the existing businesses. Yeah, there, 
our, our property tax system, largely because what I referred to a little earlier about the impact on the, the, well, we, the classification system that overtaxes business property, uh, because we want to, quite frankly, we want to subsidize the homeowner voter. And the, so over decades, there was, there was more of an incentive to keep taxes low on residential and overtax the, the uh, business that couldn't vote, right? Um, we have we've made changes to that system that uh, aren't the rule but the exception for for a company like a like a Taiwan or or an Intel to be able to make a decision see their way clear to make a locational decision here uh, by availing themselves to what we call foreign in this instance foreign trade zones. Um, the truth is, in that instance, I'd be the first to acknowledge probably wouldn't locate here. Uh, and pay that level of property taxes they otherwise would be would be paying um, from the, from a government standpoint. If you've got to make that deal, you're still benefiting. Sure, I mean, so you're, you're on a bottom line basis. You're going to do that. Right. One of the things that is is a bigger uh, concern, though, is is the extent to which this goes on on a much more micro level. The uh, as you know, being uh, at the city of Phoenix, you probably. Uh, heard of instances where people were shopping opportunities where they were going to have their property taxes completely exempted yep. through what's called the govern, government property lease excise tax. Uh, your your former boss over there was never wild about those, thank God. Uh, yeah, I'm we, not a fan. We yeah. were were highly critical of that and, and have participated with uh, Goldwater Institute in some litigation that we think is, is uh, has been successful, that we think is going to uh, go a long way to limit that activity, but it in in that instance it is it is uh, sort of the height of unfairness from a, not only a poli- policy standpoint but from a legal standpoint. You have uh, downtown Phoenix. Uh, a lot of people don't don't appreciate is one of the highest tax areas in the United States, let alone Arizona. The the overall collective taxes in in downtown Phoenix because of the uh, significant taxes from Phoenix Elementary, Phoenix Union, and and uh, uh, to a lesser extent Maricopa County and and City of Phoenix are are high. Property taxes in downtown Phoenix are double what they are in Scottsdale, if you can imagine that. So if they want to, and that that's a that's a that is a result of, in my opinion, uh, a series of bad decisions that have been made over the last 25, 30 years on what the overall tax burden was there is going to be. Phoenix sidesteps that by just rifle shotting a a property tax exemption to whoever it is they deem is qualified in uh, in their central business district in downtown. Uh, that's bad enough. But the what uh, and I, I, I get we get calls from the the property owner who finally pays attention to this and realizes for the last twenty five years they've been paying some of the highest property taxes in the United States, and then they read in the paper that the new neighbor is going to pay exactly zero it, You know, there's, there's a great example of that I want to bring up right before we go back to break. But we actually, the city of Phoenix went out and built a hotel downtown some years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and among the 27 Jeeplets that Sal had been, that they'd been brought to Sal to vote on, he only approved one over all the years, and it was because the hotel next door was getting hosed. Sure. By this deal. Right. And that's what you're doing. You have one building on one corner that is getting a big tax break. And then right across the street from them is one that's paying full boat. Yeah. And, and they're doing the same thing. Well, and, and, and even even somebody 
like uh, Sal or and and uh, Councilman Waring is is um, I know is not a big fan of this. After a while, it gets to be tough to say no to people when you have when you have an owner who's sitting in front of you saying, "How is it? I I pay these extraordinary property taxes every year, and my neighbor pays zero. Uh, at some point, people give in, and uh, as um, then Senate President Andy Biggs used to refer to this kind of stuff as path dependency. Once, once you do it, you have to keep doing it. It's a vicious that, cycle. It's vicious and it's insidious and and uh, and it and it's the and oftentimes it's the result of somebody you know going to hire a, a lobbyist to go to the city and get it done and and uh, so the insiders win and the people who don't hire lobbyists to go to the city or the uh, lose. Broken Potholes coming back in just a moment. You're going to want to stay for this section. This next segment, we are talking Virginia and the Senate race. Governor's race. Governor's race. Coming up. The 2020 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2021. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote domain from GoDaddy. Get yours now. Welcome back to Broken Potholes with your hosts Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. In the studio with us today, Kylie Kipper and Kevin McCarthy from the Arizona Tax Research Association. But right now... On the line, a guest I, I think we're all pretty excited to hear from. Uh, Brent Buchanan is CEO and founder of Signal, an innovation-driven public opinion polling and predictive analytics firm. Started in 2007 as a regional consulting firm, but uh, by 2017 transitioned to focus fully on solving problems with political polling and the insights industry. That was after the mess of polling in 2016. They've been by far the most accurate national pollster. And right now, they've been doing a lot of work on the Virginia governor's race that is in everybody's news, but is breaking pretty significantly over these last couple of weeks ahead of the election. Welcome to the program, Brent. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Good to talk to you all. So, Brent, this is Chuck. Um, tell us, what are, you, what are you finding as you survey Virginia? It seems like the last six polls I have seen come out in Virginia, including yours, have showed Youngkin making significant gains, and he's now leading or tied. Um, Fox News came out with one yesterday. Um, what did you What did you find when you did your survey that um, may su- that surprised you as a person who does polling all the time? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I I live in Virginia. I live in Arlington, and it's you know eighty percent Democratic. And driving to church, there are actually Youngkin signs in people's yards. So I mean, anecdotally. You can feel that this is different than the presidential race where everybody was terrified to even say they were a Republican, let alone put a Trump sign out and there was Um and and you you can feel the anger of the parents and especially in places like Loudoun County, which is a huge county in northern Virginia. Um, but the problem that, that we see in the data, and we've actually been doing an experimental nightly tracker um, with a totally new methodology that we're testing out at our expense. Um, and it was fascinating because we had a different team work on the Virginia survey that had the race tied down to the tenth of a percent as the team doing this experimental tracker, and they actually had the exact same ballot results, um, two totally different approaches. But then what we started to see 
um, around like sun, Saturday, Sunday time frame last week and into Monday was a pickup of steam for um, Terry McAuliffe. And he started to get actually outside the margin of error. And that, that has, in the past couple of days, come back to a little bit closer race. But, you know, the the, the polls, like the Fox News poll, um, it's really important when you're looking at polling to consider outliers. And then to look at them, see what's so different about them under the hood, and then determine, do is this really an outlier or is this a trend, a new trend that's occurring? Um, and one thing that stuck out to me most about the Fox News poll that had Yunkin up by eight is that, one, this is Virginia 2021. This is not Virginia 2009, where Bob McDonald won by a much bigger margin um, than than Obama had won by. That there was a huge swing. I mean, Virginia has changed drastically in 11 years. I mean, y'all are in Arizona. I'm not telling you something you don't know about quickly changing um, demographics and, and voter trends. But they had the Fox News poll had um, McAuliffe only winning college-educated voters by two points, which is just not a realistic number when you look at all the voter trends that have been occurring over the last several cycles where degree to voters, those who are college-educated and higher, are trending further and further away from us. So I would not expect a a double-digit correction among that group when there's really nothing to point to as to why there would be a correction. Well, the, you know, what are the other trends? Go ahead. No, let me ask you this, Brent. So did you do any polling in Virginia um, during the presidential campaign, just on your own or yeah. anything? Okay. Yeah. So we, let me ask you, we actually did the U.S. Senate race. Okay. So, so here's my question for you. That's, I think this race hinges on, do these suburban moms who are educated come back into the Republican fold? And since you did the Senate race, so you have this comparison there versus now, do you see a change, a a more activism by these moms saying, okay, they've just gone too far? Can, can you, there is, but it's like Twitter. You hear about the right. ones that are angry. You know, right. it's, it, customer satisfaction surveys, how many of those do you take when the, the experience was good to mediocre? Like, very <laughs> rarely. But when you're pissed off and it went wrong, the first thing you want to do is give your feedback. Yeah, um, exactly. So it doesn't speak for the whole when you see a small group that is very loud and angry. But is, you... is Yunkin going to do better with them than Gade for U.S. Senate and Trump for president did last year? Yes. There's just not enough of them to make an impact, and there's not enough of them swapping their votes. So, like, when we ask questions of, are you, are you okay with mass mandates for kids, suburban moms are actually favorable of mass mandates for children. How are they on the critical race theory? How are they on the host of other issues that they're pushing? That's I, I don't understand the the Republican obsession with critical race theory because it really only plays to our base. Um, moderate voters, suburban women, um, they are actually okay with it being taught because they care more about race issues than you know older voters do, and so it's just not when. When our candidates come to us and they say they want to talk about it, we go show them the crosstab of critical race by party, and we're like, you don't bring anybody your way with this. This is a base issue. So why would Youngkin win? What, 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 if he wins, why will he win? Besides, he will besides win. Terry's a schmuck, why, why would he win? <laughs> and a horrible dancer. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> he will win because even though it's not a big portion of the electorate, Hispanic and Asian and, and other minority voters, not, not African-American voters, 
are starting to trend our way, and, and they're trending along the same lines of the non-college educated. You know, our, our tracker last night actually had us at winning non-college educated voters by 19 points. That, so that share is growing. The problem is the college educated voters are also growing in share towards um, towards McAuliffe. So we we have a some a surge at the end of non degreed voters show up, if and I, that the Democrats in Northern Virginia just don't have much to be excited about. So you've got to have both sides of that equation. Does, is this because it's so close to D.C.? Um, I mean, states are states. State elections focus on state issues. But does Biden just being what he is right now and his low approvals, is that having any effect with voters? Is that is that suppressing Democrat voters and exciting Republican voters? It's definitely moving independence our way. And we see that in Oregon, Virginia, Florida, wherever we're doing the polls right now. Um so- but, yeah, it, it's more an income and education factor. Those are becoming significant predictors of competitiveness. I mean, you look at states like Colorado, for example. Um, it swung so fast because its educational attainment increased so drastically. You know, people who were college-educated wanted to move to Denver, Boulder, and, um, even Colorado Springs, and they're changing the composition of the electorate. Same with, with Arizona. Um, so... That's something we really look at is what is how bad are we losing degreed voters and how much are we starting to pick up with college, with non-college educated voters? Brent, how much are you seeing? I, we hear all the time about, oh, you know, I, I took the red pill. But I actually don't see that as being much of a shift when you've got these college educated voters. They're they're pretty set in their ways, just like the Republican base is. I really don't see much movement from that. That appears to be more of an Internet influencer phenomenon than it is a real one. Or am I off base? What do you mean by that? I just mean there's this whole idea right now that Republicans are pitching that if we just push our ideas to these dedicated liberal voters, if they see what's really going on, for instance, in our education system, all that kind of thing, we can transfer them over to our side. But in, in in a number of years, I've never seen that happen anywhere in any number. Have you seen a big shift in either base switching side? You, you bring up a really good point, and this is why we developed something last year called a motive analysis, because voting is not a logical behavior. It is very illogical how people go about voting. I mean, just like Democrats will say, well, how in the world are these lower-income, non-college-educated voters swapping over to Republicans when Republican policies hurt them, don't help them? And and then we say the same, like, how are these college-educated voters who are making a bunch of money supporting Democrats who want to tax them to kingdom come? So even just that one economic <laughs> point show proves that voting is not a logical behavior. It's an irrational behavior. So we have to understand what drives ration and irration and that is our emotions um and so when when you get to a point of like personality politics where we find ourselves donald trump joe biden didn't win trump trump pushed people away from him with his personality they loved his policies, didn't like his personality um and and we've got to take that into consideration to your point of like no we can't logically tell them their our policies are better for them because they're not making a logical decision what do you see? Let's briefly go here to um, national politics. 
Do you see Biden being able to get out of this funk he's in with the voters right now? Does he have that ability? Or are voters, are independents, which are the big part of this, have they just made up their minds that this guy is not with us? Yeah, he's. it's pretty rare that somebody that loses it pulls it back. I mean, Chuck, you've done hundreds of, if not thousands of races. Like once somebody's image goes underwater, which means more people are unfavorable than favorable of them, the only thing you can really do is try to tread water and hold it where it is. It's very hard to flip your image. When somebody like a president, there's very little undecided, if any. Everybody knows who that person is, and they have a a formed opinion of that person, and it's difficult to change it back the other direction. I mean, we have... um, We've now got Biden at, at 53%. This is just, we just came out of a national poll last night. 53% unfaith, but still 45% favorable. Um, and so he, he's been trending, but not as drastically in our polling as, as other people have. And we believe that it's, it's driven a lot still by COVID. So when you look, when you start to dive into the numbers of polls, and this is, a, this is in the Virginia poll, it's in this national poll we just finished, like seniors are still sticking with Biden because they're still worried about COVID at a higher rate than people under the age of 65 are. Um, and he's empathetic about the topic. You know, had, had Trump during COVID just come out and said, hey, I'm worried too. We don't know how to solve this thing. We're going to try some stuff and it may fail, but we're going to try because we care. If he'd had that attitude about COVID, he would have won 300 and something electoral college votes. His seniors could not stand how his tone about the issue, well, and how he was standoffish about it, as opposed to how they felt, which was very, very anxious and worried. Well, in Arizona in 16, Trump won by eight or nine points, those 65 and older. In 2020, he won by two. Right. I mean, and, and you know, as we hear all the attention about irregularities and things on the election, you know, there's two things here I can point to why there's not a Trump massive victory in Arizona. Seniors regarding COVID and just every opportunity he can to curb stomp John McCain's name. And, yeah. you know, so if I was to drive to Vegas, which is a short four hours from here today, who would you bet? Who would you tell me to bet on to be the next governor of Virginia? Oh, gosh, I'd say cover the cum. You would do it's, what? Uh, it's just to it's cover the cum. Yeah. The it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it is. It is so close. And like our model shows that it's going to, it's flattening out. So one of the things with this experimental tracker is we're trying to use past trends to predict future trends. Um, and it's showing that it's going to level out around this like one half point, one point, one point five points, which again is all within the margin of error. And, and we all hear every election. It's like, it's going to come down to turnout. But Virginia's got some really unique regions and really unique demographic differences. And so it legit will come to turn out. Right now it's pouring outside, which is going to hurt early voting. So that actually, I think, benefits Republicans a little bit. And tomorrow's the last day of early voting. 30 seconds left. Closed, so. If I, if you were my pollster yeah. and I'm running that campaign for Yunkin, what would you tell me to do the next 72 hours? Got to juice it with evangelicals. We're not getting the margins we need out of these evangelicals that we should. Interesting. That's interesting. really that's real uh, interesting and surprising. Yeah, but I think evangelicals are the ones that believe that the election stole my vote doesn't matter, and, and that's a big problem we we've got for yeah. this election and you know twenty two in general. 
yeah, it's a confidence in the system. Brent, we sure appreciate you being on. I hope you'll join us again in the future. Fantastic, my friend, and glad you're doing so well. Rogan Potholes. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Good Brent. to talk to you all. Thanks. Bye-bye. Back on air next week, but stay tuned for our podcast-only segment. We're keeping Kevin in studio with us. It's the new year and time for a new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from GoDaddy.com today. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy. We try, but we don't always get the sunshine into the studio here on Broken Potholes. But today we have a little bit of it. Yes, and this one's a good one. I like this one. Also because I'm very superstitious as well, so I enjoyed reading this story. Um, But as many people may or may not know, the Atlanta Braves are making their first World Series appearance since 1999. Um, And inside the clubhouse, players are pointing to a secret weapon that does not field, throw, or hit. Um, but it's delivered over and over again since it had arrived in June. Um, and this is a soft-serve ice cream machine. And if it's delivered over and over again since arriving in June, it's definitely not the one McDonald's uses. No, because that's always broken. <laughs> um, but this came about when the team was treading water early in the season, and they were in Boston in late May, and there was, um, they were losing 9-5, to five, and there was a three-hour rain delay. Um, the fans had left. It was pouring rain. There was nothing to do. But the clubhouse, the pantry in the clubhouse, did have a soft-serve ice cream machine. So the player said there was not really anything to do but eat ice cream. Um, so as soon as they returned home, the players rallied together and were kind of giving the clubby a hard time, saying that um, his counterpart in Boston was doing better than he was. Um, and he knew that it's he a big <laughs> insult in the clubhouse world. It is <laughs> it's a big, big insult. That poor clubby who's just I mean, the road really clubhouse <laughs> had more amenities than your home. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the players in the clubby rallied together again. Um, and assigned Freddie Freeman, the first baseman, um, to speak with the GM to kind of get approval on this. And the GM said that they knew that this was a good idea. They, d- they weren't sure because their players were going to end up five or 400 pounds, but they ended up going with it anyways. And since that arrived in June, they were on a, I think it was a nine-game losing streak, and they had two consecutive wins, which was great. They're turning things around. Um, Freddie... Freeman started the season very slow, but finished batting 300 with 31 home runs, and then they ended up making the World Series. Um, so they said that, of course, if they win the World Series, that not only champagne and beer, but also soft-served ice cream will be flowing. So. Sounds all like the Giants and their donuts. We talked about that earlier <laughs> this year, that they went and had donuts, and it just their clubhouse attendant goes and has donuts for every game, and they say it gives them energy. you know. And it, We forget, it's still a kid's game. Now, absolutely it is. And you're talking about the most superstitious people on the planet. Oh, absolutely. Pro athletes, especially baseball players. Well, I wore socks last night. I've been wearing all year when the Cardinals were playing and they lost. Those socks are thrown, been thrown away in the garbage can. Yeah, I no think it's because us. I wasn't there. I, they won every time I went to a game. Um, you were invited. I, I actually, I, 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 <laughs> look, folks, I'm going to have to apologize on this one. I'm, I am also very superstitious about this. I will never again announce I'm running for office on Cardinals game day. Thank you, Never. Sam. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Well, let's go back and talk about the exciting world of taxes in Arizona, shall we? Yes. 
I, I get fired up over this. Probably, probably makes me a little weird. No, what well, about, I mean, I guess we got a whole studio full of weird. Look, I mean, here. taxes. Look, taxes and the revenue generated for them, or how high they are, not really determines the environment that you operate your businesses, your household disposable income, and so forth. So it really needs to be a sexier issue for people, which I wish people would spend more time understanding, especially when you talk about city council meetings and the schools. I mean. The schools are like a Ponzi scheme, it seems like, with how they do their budgeting and so forth. So the legislature, let's use an example. The legislature goes and says, we want to give teachers 20% salaries. They send the money to the school boards. They don't seem to get 20% salaries. How do we explain that to voters? Well, yeah, you have to have voter interest before you can even explain it to them. And I, I tell people <laughs> that the, 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 the reason you have to give a damn. The reason why taxes are so important is they are a gauge for our demand for government. Uh, taxes in many respects are a really, really good thing. And if you want to see why they're so important, look at what happens in Washington and how much money is spent without the backing of tax revenue. It's easy to spend money if it's going to be debt financed. And you don't have to go to a voter or a taxpayer and explain the purpose for the expenditure, which is why in my judgment, some of the best tax systems in the United States at the state and local level are the ones with higher individual taxes, not necessarily income, but taxes that are very transparent that individuals have to have to uh, pay. If you go to a, I've been to probably more bu budget meetings at the local government level in Arizona than anybody. Uh, I've been to hundreds, if not thousands, counties, cities, community colleges, schools. It is a rare day to go to a budget meeting, and Sam Cray say this at Infinity, to go to a budget meeting where the budget's being adopted and there's anybody to no. show up that is going to ex express a concern over an aspect of the budget, a tax or, or an expenditure. And the reason for that is, is that we've gone to great lengths to generate our revenue in a manner that people really don't pay much attention. We have, we have relatively low homeowner property taxes. You move. How often have you you met somebody that's moved here from the Midwest, Wisconsin, or maybe maybe New Jersey back east? And the first thing they conclude is, government doesn't have enough money here because I'm not paying near the property taxes that I paid when I lived in Wisconsin or New Jersey. I've actually seen letters to the editor about that, and the Republic people oh, yep. are like, "I'm from Connecticut, and our property taxes are way too low." Yeah, it's so. Ergo, it has to be true the schools don't have enough money because they know they're not paying much. They don't realize that we're extracting twice that amount uh, per, per dollar of value from the businesses that, that's down the street. And what's, what's bad about that is, is that, it, that it pushes people away from their government. People don't understand how much government is taking in the aggregate for expenditures. And, and uh, yeah, and so when you do really want them to engage – You've done the reverse, that you've pushed them away. You've, cr you've created uh, – they're flabby. They don't understand, uh, you know, what government does. And I, I went to – I was in uh, uh, Vermont many years ago, took a son on a, on a trip there to look at a college, and there were signs all over this town, school budget meeting tonight. I asked this – I asked the baseball coach who was showing us around the town. I said, what is the deal with all these – these signs, these, but we go into a diner to have lunch. I, it's on the, it's on the cash register. I said, what is going on? He says, oh, it's a big deal here. Everybody shows up at the budget meeting. He goes, because taxes are really high. We want to know exactly how they're spending the money. Because if they're going to increase taxes, we want something to say about it. I almost canceled my flight out of there that afternoon just to be able to see that. 
You should, do not yeah. see it. Well, you we, we should do that. Know. We should do that here. Maybe that's a good thing for your group to raise some money for and do. Just show up and listen. Well, we 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 do show up, and we're well. We're you do, but the yeah. citizens, but, right? Yeah, but but it's see, it's what I'm saying. It's hard. It's hard to get that engagement and that interest when people really aren't paying. Let they're me, not disturbed about the amount that they're paying in taxes. Through your thousands of tax meetings, what do you feel for every dollar someone earns? What percentage comes to the point where you say people just say that's too much, or it or it or it suppresses economic growth? Is it twenty percent? Is it thirty percent of every household income? What tax level is there that you just start seeing a reverse effect of what they hope would happen? So, so ver- that's obviously going to vary depending upon what silo. So you state, in, right? local, federal, and everything, right? right. Yeah, and, right. It, and it does make a difference if if there are consumption taxes and uh, versus income. But clearly, with with income taxes, what you what we should have learned now over over the last many years with state with federal taxes on top of state and local taxes that you get those taxes up above twenty five percent, let alone pressing above thirty percent, that it has significant impacts on on people's decision making, not only where they locate at the state level, but where they locate internationally. Taxpayers will go, people are smart. Once they start uh, feeling that they have, they're paying more than they should, they'll go to considerable lengths, right? A- to avoid ask, ask Florida. Yeah. Or, or look at the, yeah. look at the amount of millionaires that are uh, back in the eighties that were domiciled in, um, in Las Vegas that probably really were domiciled in, in Arizona. Because we had we had considerably higher income tax rates, and then look at how many millionaires we have now. Now that the rates were brought down prior to 208, and we hope that that stays. Supreme Court has pretty much put a nail in that, but uh, we're waiting for a lower court judge to put a, the final nail in it, and that will will uh, go by the wayside. But the 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 amount of millionaires that locate you people will not pay the costs of avoidance. If it's a marginal amount of money, right? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna claim residency in Las Vegas if my if it's gonna be four percent, but you raise it to nine and ten and, and I'm gonna start doing this. Or you do what they're doing. Look at the data coming out of California with the you know, the IRS has great uh, data now that shows people the uh, changing locations based upon income tax filings and they're they're losing the upper income Californians by the by the thousands. I was at a dinner last Friday. And was sat at a table of two people who had just joined this this organization, and they had both moved from Los, a city in Los Angeles. And I said, "What happened?" And they just taxes too high. The defund the police. I'm done. We just moved here, and I would not even consider them Republicans. But they're just like it's just done. I'm just done with this. I'm not I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. And it's not going to get better out there till the last person who makes any money just turns the light off. Yeah. yeah, and um, it, it's quite remarkable to watch this this transpiring, and some states just never get it. Yeah. Kevin, in this vein, you were pretty critical in passing what we call truth and taxation here in Arizona, right? When any of your governments are actually going to raise your taxes, they're required to send you a notice in the mail that details that increase, right? Yeah, so it was it. We were we were the the authors of the 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 truth and taxation statutes that that are in the property tax area. They and it's not so it's not a mail mailer to a residence, but it requires a local government uh, based on a formula that we think fairly appraises uh, uh, how uh, this levy is going to impact taxpayers. In other words, is it neutral or is it an increase or a decrease? And so if it's an increase. They have to put an put an advertisement in the paper. They've got to put it on their websites, telling taxpayers we're gonna, and they have to have a hearing. It's a truth and taxation hearing, and um, 
they that that works uh, well in some areas of the uh, the state, not so much in others in terms of what type of interest it is drawn. But fortunately, in in most instances, it does one thing, and that is that it educates the reporters that are covering that beat that this budget actually increases taxes and. Here's the notice that the entity had to put in the paper, and they're going to have the hearing on Tuesday night and allow people to come in and yell at them if they don't they don't like the tax increase. Have you ever met a reporter that likes a tax cut? <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, the, I, I, and, <laughs> I'm not trying to get you in trouble. No, 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 so. they're, 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 Bob Rob, you know, they're, they're, Bob yeah, Rob likes a tax cut. Um, Call him this. He's not a reporter. Yeah, there's. Uh, well, regrettably, I think a, a lot of them probably are 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 not as bothered by tax increases as I I might be. But yeah, over my over my career, I've seen a few that are that are pretty fair and balanced. One last question here: As you look at how many how many millionaires do we have in Arizona now? Should I should have read our study that we did for two hundred eight? Uh, but uh, and and for anybody that wants to see that, it's on our website at arizonatax.org. Um, and what's what's phenomenal about it is is that it, we're not talking about a, a modest increase in the number of millionaires between the early night from the early 1990s prior to the reductions that started to occur in the income tax rates to today it was it was uh it's it's phenomenal but you know i think it was 600 percent increase in wow in millionaire filers and that people say well that's income based we controlled for all the all of those factors. This is this is these are locational decisions that people are making to locate here, and and it is beyond me why anybody would view that negatively. I want the more millionaires yeah, that we can outlever. Yeah, they bring I, a lot of money. They spend. I think it they the talk economy. about that a lot in the Bible. It's called coveting. Yeah, yeah. But they pay a lot of taxes. They and do, they, and they spend. They a lot, do, they, and they spend and a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. They spend a lot of money in the Arizona economy, and to the extent that they're smart, their their businesses, they're, they're angel, employing. they're angel investors too. I mean, I you know, you you meet most people here in Arizona who are quite wealthy. It's like, oh, they've invested in four or five companies. You hear that all the time in conversations. Yeah. So they're just not sitting around and playing with it, you know. But no, anyway. when someone goes and buys a hundred thousand dollar car from a dealership, they pay more taxes into that local government in that one transaction than a lot of restaurants do in an entire day. Absolutely. Sure. So, Kevin, thank you so much for being on the program. ArizonaTax.org. I know they can follow you there. Any other ways for folks to, to follow along and, and learn about what you guys are doing? That's probably the most effective okay. uh, effective means to doing it. And I appreciate the invite. Love to come back. Love to oh, have you back. Yeah, maybe dur- maybe dur- Let's have you back during the session. There you go. Yeah, we can, I think, we can see your eyes cross-eyed from all the budget yeah, you're reading. We can talk bills. about all the bad ideas. Yeah, that bad. what's planned on that in February? When you got 800 <laughs> bills, there have to be at least a couple hundred terrible Amen. ideas in there. There Amen. are. Kevin, appreciate you, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. Chuck, great program today. Folks, if you're listening out there, be sure to tune in. Saturdays, 3 p.m. You can listen to us live. Podcast comes out, Apple, Spotify, Substack, all those fun things. Be sure to follow us on Twitter too. We're, you know, and not YouTube because of um, not YouTube because of legal issues right now. Copy, we'll be back copyright, with you copyright. Man, they are tough. Get to write a song for us. Anyway, have a great weekend, folks. Bye. The political field is all about reputation, so don't let someone squash yours online. Secure your name and political future with a yourname.vote web address from GoDaddy.com. Your political career depends on it.